That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. I am Sarah Spain. Excited to chat with undefeated senior culture writer Kelly Carter today. Spent some time with her when she filled in as a guest host on the trifecta with me and Kate Fagan. But wanted to get a deeper dive into her career going from Michigan State into multiple entertainment outlets and ending up at the undefeated. We talk about the sweet spot where social issues, race and sports, entertainment and culture all sort of come together. That's where she finds her moments to write about for the undefeated. Also about how she was one of the last reporters to score an interview with Prince before his passing. So some great stories from Kelly. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Happy to have senior culture writer at the undefeated Kelly Carter as my guest today. Kelly, I want to start from the beginning because there's so much to get to lately and specifically what you're doing at the undefeated. Um, But I want to start at the beginning. Um, You know, in sports, everyone always asks, did you always know this is what you want to do? So I guess I'll say the same for um, covering entertainment and, and lifestyle and everything else. Is this something as a kid you always wanted to do? You know, not as a child. I just knew that I wanted to write and tell stories. I wasn't quite sure how I was going to be able to accomplish that um, until the ripe old age of 10 uh, <laughs> in fifth grade when I had a, a teacher who kind of guided me to the world of journalism and really introduced me to, you know, what I could actually do as a writer. I probably thought I wanted to be a fiction writer at that time, but of course there's no vocational path way that that she could have you know directed me towards so journalism was a natural step and then um the next year in sixth grade i started writing for my middle school newspaper and i was a film critic and i'm about to really date myself but <laughs> the first film i reviewed was teen wolf 2 nice and, um, and it kind of just took off from there you know i've only always been a journalist i sadly have never had any other jobs outside of this profession um, which I don't know if that's a, the best thing or not, but you know, I decided towards the end of my collegiate career that entertainment journalism was was definitely what I wanted to do. After deciding that I didn't want to, you know, chase ambulances uh, for a living as a reporter, which I think is such a noble part of the profession of journalism, I just saw that there was an opportunity in entertainment to tell some stories in a mainstream space that I hadn't seen being reported, you know, before. Certainly to my satisfaction, I think that it's worked out well for me since then. Yeah, so when I first moved out to L.A. and I was trying to do more TV hosting and acting and comedy and stuff, I was really into the entertainment side. And then one thing I realized is that, you know, I didn't feel like I fit in part because I was trying to do on-camera stuff. And I just felt like I really wasn't that invested in, like, you'll never believe what Britney Spears is wearing, right? Like that kind of vibe. So so how did you take what I find to be fascinating, which is culture, entertainment, music, movies, everything, but but attack it in a way that you found it was like interesting and valid to you and not um, superficial. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to always try and find the substance in this. There's such an influx and such a flooding of that type of reporting. Um, everybody's a journalist, quite frankly, and everybody's an entertainment reporter, an entertainment expert, because all you need, you know, is to have a URL these days, maybe a microphone, maybe a digital recorder, and bam, you know, you can get a credential and, and start right. kind of, you know, opining and reporting on, on entertainment. But the thing that, that we don't see as much as I would like to see is someone that, if, even if you're sitting down with some of the world's most famous people, you know, finding out something that is interesting to them that you may not 
be acutely aware of that happens on screen or, you know, in front of a, a microphone. And I think we're starting to see a lot of that, a lot of examples of that um, in many different ways from different actors who have taken up championship causes uh, and becoming activists in very real ways and using their platforms to kind of speak out against, you know, human trafficking or, um, you know, sexual assault and things of that nature. And I think it's really important to kind of be somebody who can help be a vessel for some of those stories. And you certainly look around and the news that's captivating Hollywood right now certainly centers around kind of, uh, not kind of, but, but directly addressing the sexism that's been happening and that's been knowingly happening in Hollywood for a while. And I think part of the reason that those stories were very slow to get out there uh, is because people weren't really reporting entertainment the way that entertainment really could be reported, you know, yeah. by looking at the depth and looking at stories behind behind the stories and really kind of getting in there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what was your major at Michigan State? I studied journalism. Okay. That's pretty boring. <laughs> no, that's not boring. That's I mean, I like it when people have it figured out and they, you know, they go straight to it. Um, and wh- while you were there, what sort of stories did you do? Like, do you remember anything standing out that was sort of um, a-, a step towards becoming a professional and really understanding how things work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we so I worked for my school newspaper, which is called the State News. And they had an internship program. And so while I was an intern, I got to look at all the, you know, upperclassmen, which, of course, included uh, Jamel Hill and, and, and people like that, and, and kind of, you know, see the positions they were taking on there. And I think I always say that the biggest lesson that I got in journalism was actually being an intern at my college newspaper. Um, on campus at the time, there was a Mexican-American student group called Mecha. And there are a lot of chapters that campuses across the country. Um, And one thing that they really wanted Michigan State University to do was to boycott um, specific farms that they believed were um, using toxic chemicals and that were killing off Mexican migrant farm workers. And and they were serving them in our cafeteria. And and the, the thing that they were focused on were the grapes. It was specifically the grapes that were being served in the cafeteria. And everything they did from, you know, protesting the president's state of university addresses, nothing was getting the traction they wanted to until one kid named Mark Torres, who actually was an intern at the state news the semester before me. Um, And he only worked at the newspaper that one semester, but he had very smartly realized the power of media um, once you kind of found something that that kind of stuck. And so about five or six of the kids in Mecha decided they were going to go on a hunger strike until the university, um, you know, stopped serving these grapes in the cafeteria. And I would imagine at the time when that when that was announced that university administrators figured that would mean that the kids wouldn't eat pizza and beer for a while and then it would go away. Right. But what they didn't know was that Mark Torres had diabetes. And obviously, if you have diabetes and you don't eat, you get very ill. And so he was hospitalized, refused wow. to take anything intravenously, and all of a sudden, that story went from being something that happened on campus and that was reported about in a, you know, nice size campus daily to being a very national story. All of the big dogs wanted to come in and cover the story. And I sat back and was in awe at the power of media and the power of the written word. And that really, it was very life changing for me and really excited me and activated me about wanting to be a journalist, wanting to do work that the world would kind of take notice of or a community would take notice of and in some cases respond to it. Yeah, absolutely. 
So you mentioned Jamel Hill, and um, were you guys actually friends in college, or was it something that came about after you left Michigan State? Oh, yeah, we were friends in college. Um, We kind of instantly clicked, and she forced her friendship upon me. Um, and, And then we ended up living together in college, too, so we're college roommates as well. Oh, wow. Okay, so this goes back. This goes yeah, back. It goes way back. Um, and I, I, I feel sad saying that. <laughs> oh, years of you don't want to say how old. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say how old, but it was probably in the, in the 90s. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you leave Michigan State, and what comes next for you? Um, so my first job out of college was working at the Detroit Free Press. And it was awesome because I went there thinking that I wanted to be a live theater critic. But what ended up happening, and once again, I am absolutely dating myself. I started working at the Free Press right before this guy, I don't know if you've heard of him before, um, named Marshall Mathers, got signed to Dr. J's label. And all of a sudden, Detroit, which had this very rich, storied musical history in Motown, but it certainly hadn't been a presence in some 25, 30 years by the time I started working there, all of a sudden had another national music scene. And it wasn't just Marshall or Eminem and D12 being signed. Um, it also was Kid Rock also making, you know, headways and insane clown posse. Oh and it was just such an interesting time to kind of be in a space where I'm the youngest person, the only woman, the only person of color in my, um, in my department, and the only person that was even remotely interested um, in hip hop and knew anything about hip hop. And so that is really what launched my career as an entertainment journalist. And I, I could not have planned that, obviously. It just happened, and it was kind of amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Jamel was at the Free Press at, at that point, right? She started after me. So I probably started there in September. And then she came, I would say, like maybe four or five months later to cover Michigan State football and basketball. Got it. Got it. And so that's that's pretty amazing that you guys end up in, in college together, you get your first jobs together, and then years mm-hmm. later it comes back around at ESPN. But we'll get we'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> um, so you went from the Free Press on to Chicago Tribune and USA Today, right? I did, yes. And then and mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say yeah, and those are great experiences too. Um, definitely learned a lot. I stayed in Detroit for a long time, mostly covering that hip hop scene, and then I left to go to Chicago to start to cover. Hollywood and kind of learn what that's like. And then when USA Today called and asked me to be a red carpet reporter in LA, it was like, yes, let's do this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder when you were covering the hip hop stuff. Um, well, yeah, let's start there. When you're covering the hip hop stuff, there's always this disconnect that people um, have in, in appreciating as an art, but not always appreciating the message behind it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's something that's come up to you when you're covering it or when you're interacting with some of the artists who I think everybody acknowledges that um, there's sometimes a difficulty in supporting the people, even if you support the art. Um, Mm -hmm. How have you reconciled that or how did, how was that dealt with when you were covering some of these people? Yeah. You know, one time I was interviewing this rapper and producer by the name of David Banner. Um, He's more probably known for his body of work as a producer than he would necessarily be in any mainstream sense as a rapper. And, and that's his moniker. David Banner is not his real name. But one thing that he, that he said to me that I thought was so interesting, and, it, and he told me this early in my career, and it kind of stuck with me 40 years and, and still sticks with me, is that people are never able to separate the art from the artist when it comes to hip-hop specifically. 
um, that you can always look at someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but you never talk about how many people he killed in his films versus, right. you know, what, his, what who he is like as an individual. And David Banner happens to be a rapper who was making, you know, some of the biggest hits for Little Wayne and had very, you know, misogynistic lyrics that people love to dance to at clubs, but he also had a master's degree in education. And, um, and that was kind of a message that he wanted to get across. And I always thought that that was really interesting because in a lot of ways he's correct. But I think the thing that you also have to factor in is the environment that a lot of rappers come out of. It can be a challenge to, um, to necessarily escape some of the realities of, of where they originated from. So while yes, he is correct that a lot of these guys are characters and they are, I, I call them, you know, street reporters are telling stories that, even your best cops reporter would never be able to tell because they would never be able to infiltrate a neighborhood the way that some of these guys are able to and, and kind of tell you what's happening. You look at NWA and what they were doing in the late 80s. It's the same thing, um, telling a lot of these, you know, kind of gripping stories um, that are unfortunate. But um, but at the same time, you know, these same people who want to be, you know, who want to be separated from the art that they're from sometimes get into trouble that's directly attached to you know, maybe their origin story, too. And I think that's part of where the complications come in and, and part of what makes that theory that he said problematic. But I do think that there's definitely something to that. And that's just something that I kind of always carry, especially when I'm talking to um, men and women in hip hop. Yeah. Well, and there's a I think there's an interesting mix there between, though, if they're playing a character versus needing to be that character mm-hmm. in order to. Mm-hmm assimilate with people that they want to speak on or, or interact with. You know what I mean? There's a, there's Absolutely. probably a blurry line for a lot of them. There, there is. I mean, you look at someone like, you know, Tupac, may, may he rest in peace. I think he was a very prime example of that. Um, you know, it has been said, and I certainly never would have sat down and interviewed Tupac, but it has been said that when he took on his first movie role in Juice, playing a guy from the streets who was a sociopath, quite frankly, that he was such a character actor that he couldn't, he became, you know, that, that guy and couldn't quite remove himself from, he couldn't quite remove that character from himself. And that kind of sent him down a bad, bad path, you know, maybe being right. out in a public space at a park and getting into a fight that he didn't necessarily have to get into. It was just challenging for him to pull himself out of that. Um, but yeah, but I, I think that's very real what you said. And I don't know. I think it's something that makes interviewing and talking about rappers certainly interesting that you have such a different level of dynamics to interview them about and talk to them about and have very real conversations that a lot of reporters aren't necessarily having with them. And I think something that, that I've talked about before that is always fascinating and hard to sort of breakdown is the idea of separating the art from the artist in mm-hmm. ways that we have much more difficult doing difficulty doing with an athlete right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when it's an artist it feels like they've created something and put it out into the world and you can appreciate that without necessarily supporting them which feels very different from an athlete who you cheer in the moment right no i i, I totally agree um I think it's it's interesting because a, a lot of people, a lot of a lot of rappers, especially right now, are experiencing maybe a little bit of shift in the art that they're doing, and they're recognizing 
you know, the platforms that they have and how they want to take advantage of them and maybe change a little bit. I mean, you look at a guy like Eminem and everyone was talking about his cipher from the BET Hip Hop Awards a few weeks ago. And I know he's getting ready to release a new album, which I understand is going to be such a complete departure from the first LP, you know, the same LP where people criticized him for homophobia and sexism and so on, that this album is probably going to be very politically laced and inspired and it's going to take him into, you know, a new era. It's going to be mid-40s hip-hop, you know? Right. And, and the kind of thing that probably will get lower third mentions on cable news networks. Yeah. And I see more of that happening, too. And I think when that happens, that's when that question is going to come up again. Are people going to reach back 15 years ago and talk about the the Eminem who we were first introduced to, the kind of mildly sociopath guy who didn't respect women or didn't respect authority and so on and so forth? Or are we going to you know listen to what it is he's saying and maybe talk about the community that he chooses to represent? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's complicated with all people, right? People who evolve mm-hmm. and change. And and um, and for Eminem, I think it was also really um, – it was interesting to see the varying reactions to his quote-unquote freestyle um, that he did about the president because mm-hmm. there, were, there were these people who said, look, there was a lot of things we didn't like about him before, but we're with him on this. And then there were others who – who said, listen, I don't, I don't need to agree with him on a personal level or in the choices that he makes, but this is a bold move for him to make cons- considering his potential audience, right? The number of people who probably were in the Venn diagram fans of both him and the president and him deciding Absolutely. that he was willing to, to forsake those people in order to speak out what he thought. Absolutely. And directly call that, that uh, community of people out too, if you, if you remember what yeah. he was saying in that freestyle rap. I, I was like, okay, I mean, he literally said, I'm drawing a line in the sand, like it's him or me. And I think that he's aware, and he was aware at the time when he came out that he was getting a fan base that uh, traditional hip-hop performers were not getting. And in a lot of cases, they were people who were new to the art form of hip-hop. Right. And he literally quite directly addressed that, that fan base of people. So I'm really curious to see what happens when this new project comes out, whenever it comes out. I don't believe that there's an an exact release date on it, but I'm almost certain that we will literally be having that discussion that that you talked about, about separating art from the artist when it does come out. That's another aspect that's interesting. I had Bomani Jones on the podcast over a year ago to talk about Justin Timberlake and the BET Awards and Jesse Williams, and there was a big blow up and um, mm-hmm. accusations of cultural appropriation. And I sort of asked him if a white artist like an Eminem or a Justin Timberlake, um, that's the music that speaks to them and that's the the mm-hmm. the art that they want to pursue. It's very difficult, right, to have that balance of honoring the people that came before you and the, and the, and the art and the culture um, without it looking like you're profiting off of it in ways that African-Americans aren't able to, or, or haven't been accepted. Like what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I'm still sort of struggling in some instances to decide um, when someone has properly paid their dues and, and proved that they understand the history behind their art. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's such a case by case thing for me. Um, You know, I look at someone like Justin Timberlake. I remember interviewing him when um, the first, when his first solo album came out, 
And when his first solo album, maybe it was when it was about to come out. And at the time, there was the song from NSYNC, Gone, <laughs> if you remember that song. Of when course. When it came out, it felt very, um, it was very much an R&B song. And at the time, I was still living and working in Detroit. And Detroit had two um, urban radio stations, black radio stations that played only, you know, black music or, you know, music that fell into the urban category um, of genre. And Gone was played on the what was called the Top 8 at 8 on WJLB, which was mind-blowing because I don't know if they had ever had um, a white, you know, group had ever infiltrated the Top 8 at 8. Like, that was just such a – I don't think Eminem had ever made in the Top 8 at 8. And so I um, I mentioned that to Justin. I said, you know, Gone went into the Top 8 at 8, and, you know, they talk about, like – crossing over and crossing black, which is, you know, when a white artist <laughs> crosses over into a black space. And he was just like, that was the biggest compliment, like, of his life at that moment. Like, the fact that music that he was creating was making waves into urban radio stations like that. For him, that was the audience that he knew was important to reach, especially as he was venturing out as a solo artist and working with people like the Neptunes and the Clips. Like, he was... Yeah very deliberately trying to appeal to a certain audience because if he got the head nod from that audience, then that meant that the music that he was making felt authentic to him, but certainly authentic to, you know, a group of people that grew up with a certain type of music and were accustomed to a certain type of sound. Um, so, you know, that said, I mean, it's, it's really just a case by case basis. I mean, I feel like someone like Justin Timberlake is authentic in the music that he puts out and creates. He's from the South and he is from, you know, the same space where someone like Usher is from. And so it, it makes sense that the music that appeals to him and the music that he wants to create, you know, is the same akin with the music that someone like Usher would want to create. Right. Yeah. But it's case by case. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It still, it still you know, gets complicated. Be rich and famous. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Um, all right, so you um, you get to a bunch of different places. You're you're covering entertainment, and then you're doing stuff for TV Guide Channel E, MTV News, Jet, Ebony. Um, when did this ESPN opportunity come up, and why did you decide the undefeated was the right move? Yeah, so at the time I was working um, at BuzzFeed in Los Angeles, and I was having a great time at BuzzFeed, and I thought it was important to go there you know, as I say, to, to really get under the hood of what was happening in digital entertainment, obviously. Um, you know this as well as I know this. There's such a change in, in our industry, and I think that, it, you know, it's important to kind of keep up with the change. And I wanted to know what it was that BuzzFeed knew that was happening, how their news is going viral, and what made people attracted to it. I had a great time there, but I was watching, certainly, what was happening at ESPN. I was very interested in The Undefeated the second that it was first announced and I kind of watched all the things that were happening and thankfully I you know got a phone call from Marie Donahue wanting to sit down and have a conversation we ran into each other at the ESPYs two years ago and she said let's let's have breakfast and talk about you know what I'm hoping happens at at the undefeated and we sat down and I was sold probably within the first 10 minutes and then it just took a couple of more months for her to, you know, identify and locate and hire Kevin Merida, who um, who runs the Undefeated, who's my boss, and and um, and then I ended up being his first hire after he, um, you know, moved Raina Kelly from the magazine over 
to the undefeated and it's been fantastic. And I think what really appealed to me is after covering entertainment for all this time, you know, you end up interviewing a lot of the same people over and over again. Right. And it gets a little boring. And I know that sounds like first world problems. It's like, how many times can I interview? <laughs> how many times do I Beyonce? have to hang out with Justin Timberlake? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh my God, I've got to get drunk with Mark Wahlberg again. Oh, <laughs> I know, you know, but, but what I loved about this opportunity is that it was going to allow me to interview those same types of people again, but through a different prism. Right. And, you know, I, I, I could figure out ways to talk to people that um, and, and interview them and, and tell stories that also appeal to a sports consuming audience and also talk about something that I felt like I kind of unknowingly developed an expertise in, which certainly is, is race and race and entertainment. And, and, and how that, you know, registers now, like in 2016 and 2017 and beyond. Um, so it was just a, it was an easy sell for me, and I'm, I'm super happy. So tell me about that sweet spot, because, you know, I think when ESPNW started, there were certainly questions of how, how and why are we different and necessary, and how do we cover things in a way that makes it um, – an, a necessary and useful addition to the site, a, a companion to the site. It's not replacing it, but it's also not something that um, we could also be doing buried in, in the wide swath of a giant dot com. Um, so mm. when you're looking for that sweet spot of culture, entertainment, race, everything, how do you know when you've hit on something? And are there a lot of stories that you'd like to cover that they say, ah, there's just not really a spot for it here? You know, I haven't I haven't run into that moment yet where they're like, eh, that's probably not the right story to do. It's usually an automatic green light, um, which has been very, very great. I've been fortunate yeah. that that's been my experience so far. Um, and I think how I know is I, I, I always try and, like, fill the holes. I want to figure out what big ESPN isn't necessarily paying attention to, especially because I am an entertainment reporter, and I would venture to say one of the few people, probably the only person company-wide who, who solely 100% pays attention to Hollywood and, and music. And I think one of the first stories I did at The Undefeated was I sat down with E.J. Johnson, Magic Johnson's son. And to me, that was a story that you know I felt hit right at the intersection of all the things that we strive to do with The Undefeated. I was able to talk with an openly gay black man who happened to be the son of one of the greatest NBA players of all time, who also, you know, was very public about his HIV diagnosis and his strides and work with LGBT communities. And so, and he had this new reality show that was coming and he wanted to create an empire in a world that has nothing to do with the Dodgers or LA Lakers and everything to do with fashion. And, and so for me, I felt like I was uniquely qualified to tell that story and to talk to him about that. And so I look for pieces like that that I don't think we'll necessarily be able to find in other spaces um, throughout ESPN. That isn't always the case. There's sometimes where I'm like, oh, that's cool that someone else interviewed Denzel Washington, you know, elsewhere at ESPN. I hope that I can figure out a different way to interview him. But for the most part, those are things I tend to look for. Yeah, absolutely. And are there opportunities to just write about culture in a way that doesn't even touch sports for you, seeing as that your your title is senior culture writer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are. I think that probably selfishly, and I say selfish because I, I, 
I love that I can, I have the opportunity to look at things in a different way. Um, I kind of like figuring out like a sports, something or other to get in there. You know, I have an interview coming up this week with an actor who's going to be on a new CBS show. Um, I have no idea if there even will be any sports, anything. I find that a lot of these actors specifically and musicians too, they love talking to me because they think what we're going to do is talk about sports. And I'm like, right. yeah, we're actually not going to talk about sports. <laughs> talk about something else, but let's figure out a sports analogy. I, I did a piece on Audra McDonald earlier this year who there's no way, shape or form her world has anything to do with sports. She is a Broadway icon and was in beauty and the beast live action film, but we got to talking and I feel like the last question I asked her somehow got us to the reason why she ended up getting pregnant at 46 years old is because her husband is a big Green Bay Packers fan, and they went into the Super Bowl, and and it was a good it was a good moment. That it was a good night, was a right? Baby, right? And so I that's like, like that's the commercials kind of that they do for the NFL, which is crazy because I always think that they're kind of forced, but apparently it's a real thing. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. So you have like little moments like that where it's like, okay, I can figure out a way to work that into a story about how she's playing a wardrobe. And Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> right. that again has nothing to do with sports, but everything to do with sports in some in some ways. Because she wouldn't have done that role had she not been pregnant. Like that pulled her off of a of a Broadway project, and you know, kind of the domino effect happens. So, um, so I mean, there there are moments like that that happen too. And then there's some stories that it just doesn't work. There's no sports whatsoever. Um, but that's very few and far between. Yeah, how is it for you going from a place? Um, like BuzzFeed or anywhere that's known to be straight entertainment and is probably pretty, I mean, I know that there's trolls and there's terrible people everywhere, but I wonder if there's any part of the sports world that has different expectations and that you had to get used to that when you got to ESPN. Um, I feel like the only, even, because I feel like what you're probably talking about is maybe a little bit of pushback from the industry itself. Right, like I, like with us, it was why do we need a W? So why do we need right. an undefeated, right? Why do we need a culture writer at ESPN? Um, or even just wanting to insert issues that relate to social issues or racial issues and people pushing back on that and saying, you know, we don't need to get into this. Let's just keep it sports, sports, sports. Yeah, you know, un- unfortunately, <laughs> we, we're, not, we're not in a position to do that. You know, one thing that I definitely have talked about with my bosses at the undefeated um, especially when we first started, is I didn't know, you know, how ripe the um, the fields would be for for stories that the kinds of stories that we were looking for, the kinds of stories that we wanted to tell. But probably right after we launched, almost on a daily basis, there is something that is happening that speaks directly to why the undefeated exists. So if anything, you know, we could probably stand to populate our staff even more to help us cover. All of the things that are coming out, whether it whether it's you know the, the take a knee or whether it's um, you know like a, like a tennis star being arrested, um, you know in like an aggressive and false way in New York, you know so on and so forth. There are so many stories that speak to exactly um, what we're looking for at the undefeated, and it just never runs out. And and now you have a world where you have you know. Gabrielle Union and LeBron James partnering up to do a series that deals directly with race. So now you have sports, race, entertainment 
you know, all in one fun little log line. And, and it just makes my job right. really easy, I, I think, you know, to be able to go out and kind of report these stories and tell these stories for the undefeated. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I think athletes and, and uh, politics and social issues have, have crossed paths forever, but now much more so um, with social media and with um, mm-hmm. just as outspoken as some of the biggest stars mm-hmm. are now. You mentioned way back at the beginning how everybody's a reporter and everybody's got a camera and a YouTube channel and everything else. Mm-hmm. How has your job changed from when you started to now in terms of competing with those people or finding a way to get people to say, I want to get my news and information from you instead of any of the other many places I could get it? I think it helps having a head start, you know, um, before the, the explosion of of a place like YouTube and, and the explosion of you know, uh, people creating digital shows. It helped to already have like a good 10 year head start before those things really started happening. So, you know, Hollywood is such like, it's a world that is unlike any other world, you know, in a sports world, if you want a credential to a game, you probably just apply to get the credential and then you go and you cover it and you can interview people, you know, after the, after the game. And it's great. That's just not how it works. Entertainment, entertainment, you probably would have to, have taken that the publicist out to drinks and dinner and build up a relationship so that they will even return your email, you know, or your phone call. And, and, and they only work with certain types of reporters for certain types of stories. And, and that's just the reality of how Hollywood, how, how Hollywood works. Um, and it's been that way for a very long time. I would venture to say for, uh, at least two generations, but it's gotten even tighter, I think, as the explosion of these sites and um, and YouTube channels and, and digital spaces have shown up. It's really like a very much relationship-driven right. industry. Um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. The publicists are the most powerful people in the room in a lot of places in Hollywood, and that that's just going to remain. So... I wonder, in terms of that, if you were giving advice to people wanting to get into the industry, do you feel like a lot of times your connection to the publicists or your ability to work with them and get the stories and interviews that you want is just that you happen to have a natural fit with some of them? Or are there tactics that you use? Are there ways that you've learned that make it easier for you to make those connections and and keep them? Yeah, I mean, I I think the thing that I would always tell someone is to – reach out to someone when you don't need them. You know, um, it's really just about fostering relationships. You know, don't always call a publicist when you need an interview, when you need a quote, when you need a a verification. Um, You know, just just make sure that you are maintaining a relationship with someone just for the sake of maintaining a relationship with someone because it pays off in dividends down the line. Like, it always does. And and then sometimes it doesn't require a lot. I was interviewing someone a couple of weeks ago and just asked him a question that, quite frankly, he didn't have, a, like, a great answer for, so I wouldn't have necessarily used it anyway. I was really just asking him, like, what other projects are you working on? He really didn't have a solid answer. We get off, we were doing a phone interview. We get off the phone. His publicist, who I guess was listening in on it, called me and said, oh, my God, I would really appreciate if you didn't include – the project because this one is in green lit and this, and I was thinking right. I wasn't going to include that anyway, but and you make it look so like, Oh, to, for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For you. So like, we'll give you anything you want in the future. Sit down with any of our clients. I'm like, well, I'll, 
I'll gladly take that. <laughs> you know, thank you. Thank you. But it was unnecessary. But that really is what what it's like navigating the space. Yeah, absolutely. And do you like that? Is there a part of you that is like kind of exhausted sometimes with the with the ass kissing and the, and the need to sort of um, potentially uh, compliment and, and give give, you know, pump the tires of people that maybe don't deserve it? <laughs> Um, no, because I, I feel like I'm always authentic in my conversation with people. Like I, I just think that it's important not to be, to be exactly who you are and not to put on and not to be fake and not to be anything other than Sarah Spain or Kelly O'Carter in this, in this space. Um, because people can read through that. You right. can read through when For somebody sure. is BSing you, you know, yeah. they can read through it too. I've seen people do it and I'm like, God, you were doing the absolute most right now and it's so unnecessary to do this to this person like reel it in a little bit <laughs> it'll take you much further in life yeah absolutely well that's just good in general right but especially when you're dealing with people to be sort of consistent over the years no matter and, and i'm sure that there's some rep who's got some not that talented person or not that well-known person and then years later they've got some huge superstar and you're glad you yep. already had that relationship and that you respected them you know when they were yep when they were trying exactly. to get their person some shine when they didn't have you know a big name exactly um, you know it was so funny this one publicist told me i was covering the detroit super bowl and i think it was 2006 and i was still a reporter at the free press at the time and he was you know kind of an up and coming but had a big enough client uh a publicist out in la and he was so nice and so accommodating because we obviously really wanted to be the the record of authority on all the fun celebrity party stuff that was happening in Detroit. And then fast forward to three years later, I moved out to L.A., and I was in a very enviable position that he needed me to be in. And he said to me one time we were at lunch, he's like, God, I'm so glad I was so nice to you a couple years <laughs> ago go. in Detroit because you may not have taken my phone call if yep. I weren't now. Yeah, and I'm like, absolutely. well, that's, I guess how it works. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so tell me about... I was reading that you were one of the last journalists to get to interview Prince. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me about what you remember from that interaction and, and that opportunity. Yeah, um, that was, oh, gosh, that was amazing. So the last place that I interned um, before I started the Free Press was the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And I used to joke and tell people that I took that um, that job because I wanted to stalk Prince, one of the world's <laughs> biggest Prince fans right here and. And I'm also a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. And we have an annual convention. And that year was in Minneapolis. Prince finds out about it. And he, his team invites NABJ to come over to Paisley Park and have a dance party. But we didn't even know if he was there or not. I get there. I was, you know, you, know, you can have cell phones or any recording devices or anything. And they don't serve alcohol at Paisley Park. Um, you know, just a lot of kind of hard and fast rules. And I get pulled aside with uh, nine other journalists representing, you know, other, other outlets, um, mostly, you know, NPR and ESPN too. Will Bond was one of the journalists. And we get, you know, told to line up in like a single file line. And we walk in, go down this hallway. It's very cool. All the, you know, artwork and records and platinum plaques of Prince throughout the years. We go into Studio A, and I look and I see Prince sitting behind 
the boards. I've never in my life been starstruck. And I wouldn't say that I was starstruck in this moment, but I was more like, oh, my God, my childhood icon is sitting right here in front of me. And so I reached my hand out and said, you know, like, hi, hi Prince, I'm Kelly. And, you know, shook his hand. And then Wilbon is behind me. And, and so Mike Wilbon shakes his hand. He goes, hi, I'm Mike Wilbon. And Prince goes, you know, damn well I know who you are. And I was like, <laughs> that was probably the most jealous, borderline hater. But he is geeked like, holy crap. Like, he knows people watch his show, but he's right. like, Prince clearly watches my show. And um, and it was cool. You know, it was, um, it was a no-holds-barred conversation. We talked about everything from, you know, his music career, um, life goals, racism in the industry, um, everything. I mean, and he's wearing a gold lame pantsuit and platforms the whole time, so it was very on brand. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I actually got to see him in a really small venue. He came in to do a wedding for, um, uh, now, of course, I'm blanking, the creator of Star Wars. Uh, uh, oh, the creator of... Um, why am I blanking on George, his name? Yes. George <laughs> yes, George Lucas. He came in to do George Lucas's wedding and announced like a surprise pop-up show at City Winery um, right mm-hmm. after. And randomly, my husband happened to be listening, scored us tickets. And even though we had to wait in line for several hours because he was much later than he said, uh, mm-hmm. it was awesome because it was probably maybe 300, 400 people total in the room. And she had, yeah. um, she had, he had, he had like a maybe 14 piece band with him on this tiny stage. Uh, mm-hmm. It was awesome. It was, and I was so glad that I got to see him before before he went. So that's a really cool memory for you to have for sure. Um, for sure. He was, he was awesome. That was a great, and I'd seen him perform a lot too, but so just kind of, Oh, and you know, I have to say this too. What was so funny is, so he, he said that the studio was too small. So he wanted us to go to this um, conference room. So he led us down like this hallway and like on the right hand side is this like very kitsch fifties diner place. Uh-huh. It looked like you could, like, there would be a waitress on a on roller skates coming by to order your food. And the first thought I had was, is that where you made the pancakes after that basketball game from that? <laughs> yes, Dave of course. Game? And I'm kicking myself that I did not ask him that. Yeah. Because I didn't know how that was going to go. And I totally regret that. But I think I may have seen the place where the pancakes are made. That's so. amazing. It is kind of <laughs> funny when you have to figure out, like, in that moment, um, would he like, how's he going to react to that? Like, I remember yeah. when I was just starting out, I think I, I was right after South Park and I, and Kanye was on the red carpet and he wasn't going to stop and actually talk to me. But I was like, do you like fish sticks? And I was like, <laughs> eh, probably not like something he actually wants to answer and probably not something he actually would want to, you know, have a conversation on, but I couldn't help myself. There's just those moments where you're like, this will be funny. And you're like, maybe not. Never mind. Backing away. Right. Um, so I want to ask you quickly, uh, about you mentioned the National Association of Black, Black Journalists. Um, are you still the Arts and Entertainment Task Force Chair? I am, yes. So what does that entail, and, and why did you want to get into that? Well, you know, I just <clears throat> I just feel like I've been so blessed and fortunate in my career that I just really wanted to give back and help um, launch some other careers of younger journalists and people who kind of aspire to do the same things that I've been able to do. And basically what I do is I curate the programming for geared for arts entertainment journalists. And that also includes travel journalists as well and fashion journalists and so on and so forth um, for the annual convention. And, and in some cases, some events sprinkled 
throughout the year, but probably the biggest part that I do is the celebrity contingency. We have, you know, big film festivals every year, as I can mention, where we bring in um, films. Like over the years, we brought in like Django Unchained and, you know, even back in the 90s, like Soul Food and, you know, Dream Girls, things like that. And and so I, I kind of coordinate with the studios and with NABJ to bring those experiences to NABJ because a lot of people who cover entertainment, they may not work for companies that are able to send them out to L.A. to actually sit down in front of talent right. and have conversations with them. Um, so we tend to bring those people there to NABJ so they get a chance to have that experience. Like we yeah. brought, you know, like Lupita a couple of times and Forrest Whitaker and, and so on and so forth. And it's just been such a great experience for people. Yeah. And, and that's meaningful to you, especially because did you have mentors or people that gave you a hand up when you were getting started and now you want to turn around and do that again? You got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to reach back and you have to like make sure that you are some doing your part to bring up the next iteration of people um, who can do what you do and probably can do what you do better. I mean, I always tell people that like, I don't try and be me, be better than me. Trust me. Um, avoid my, my pitfalls, but, um, but certainly, you know, want to get them in the space where they can have a chance to grow and, and be who they're supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before I let you go, you got to do one last thing. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects it. Number one, <laughs> what's the natural talent you'd like to be gifted with? Ooh, um, I wish I could beatbox. Beatbox? Yeah, that could be kind of cool. Okay, I, I like this. I'm not very good at it. Everyone says singing. I like that it's similar, but you at least like went a little <laughs> bit different. I did. <laughs> have you ever tried it? I have. I've tried it before. Um, it just sounds disgusting and not like what I would like it to sound like. <laughs> so I'm but, not very good at it at all. You can really tell I came from that like kind of late eighties era of hip hop. Yeah. But I thought it was so cool seeing like Biz Marquis beatbox and I could never pull that off. That's funny. Uh number two, what's your desert island album? You could only have one. Ooh, only one. Okay, in that case I'm taking the Heartbreak album by New Edition. All right. <laughs> All right, nice. Uh, number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Beyonce, hands down. Beyonce. She's got the babies. She's got she's got talent. She's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people have said that. Releases an album. <laughs> yeah, I would say Beyonce and Barack Obama are like my the, yeah. the most often voted. Uh, <laughs> number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Ooh, I was. Um, snowmobiling in utah the first and only time and we get up to the top of a hill and it was only one way down and the guy was like don't press the brakes because if you do it's going to flip over and you'll break your neck uh-huh. but i had to get down i was scared as hell but i did not press the brakes <laughs> obviously um but i've never been that scared in my life yeah and were you seriously injured at all no i wasn't i wasn't injured at all and wow. um i was very happy <laughs> to arrive yeah. safe, sound, and without harm. There you go. Uh, number five, what would you consider to be your biggest failure? Hmm. You know, honestly, that I didn't figure out early enough 
how to create a healthy balance of work and life. Yeah. I wish I'd done that. Like I'm thinking about ways to do that now, but I wish I'd done that 10 years ago. What is, what's the biggest secret to you figuring that out now? Um, that the things that you think are, you know, just so important actually aren't that important. I think quality of life and however you define that to be, um, is what's most important, not, you know, being the first to, to get the big story. Yeah. Do you think part of that is, is that once you've received a certain amount of success and validation, it's easier not to be constantly sprinting or do you yes. think, or do you think that you would have been able to come to that, that realization, even if you were still in like full sprint mode? No, I, I, I truly think it's only because I've been able to cross things off that yeah. I have the, the hindsight 2020 vision. Yeah. For I sure. don't know if I would be saying that if I were still trying to climb and get certain things checked off. Yeah, it's really hard, I think, to sometimes give advice to people and, and like, not condescendingly say, well, there's really nothing that will make you believe this until you go through it, right? You know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. because you don't want to sound like, oh, you'll never understand, but that's kind of how it is. And that's, that's what sometimes stinks about life is you got to go through all the stuff to get, to get to somewhere that changes your perspective. Um, yeah. But it's cool. Um, number six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Ooh, um, that I'm my own biggest critic. You know, I, I mean, you know, I can I can write a report something and think that it's fantastic on Monday when it publishes, and on Tuesday I think it's the worst thing that I've written. You know, that <laughs> to me requires me to stay hungry, and I'm always looking ahead. I'm never looking back. I think there are some people, and you know, bless those people who can do that, who can do something that is amazing and ride out on that for the rest of their days and eternity. I'm just not one of those people. Like I'm constantly looking ahead on, on how to improve or how to do something better. And, um, and I always kind of operate like, you know, that may be my last day in the job. So, or like I'm an intern, you know, is probably a better way to put it. Um, so I'm always trying to prove myself to myself. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Um, and what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, ooh, okay, Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> well, damn. Um, I think the thing I would like to improve most about myself is, you know, not having tunnel vision, um, which I do think that I have a lot of. I mean, I started this interview telling you that, I've wanted to be a journalist since I was in fifth grade and it's the only job I've ever had. So I right. don't, I, I stay in my lane a lot of times and I really wish I could learn to color outside the lines a little bit better um, because I don't know what going left or right looks like in a lot of cases right. um, because I'm so focused on just walking like a straight line. So yeah. I wish that I could be better about taking risks and chances like that. Is some of that because you feel like you succeed best when people tell you what to do and then you do it well, because that was always mm-hmm. the issue for me is that I could find a lot of success with leadership, whether that was in school where I knew the assignment or at work where I knew the assignment, but I don't feel like my brain is entrepreneurial enough in just like creating outside of what's expected. Yeah. You know, you definitely hit something on, on the head when you said that I, I hadn't spent much time thinking about, why that is but the truth is that I think that I follow directions pretty well you know so if you tell me to do something like I'm a pretty 
good follower. And that's not to say that I don't think that I'm a great leader. I think that I am, but I'm a leader if I have a really great blueprint for how to be a leader, if that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I would like to push myself in the future to try things and test myself out in ways that I haven't done before. Right, for sure. Finally, number eight, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Mm, loyal, honest, and informed. Those are good. Those are good, especially for a journalist. Loyal, I honest, hope and so. You might also be the fastest yet to get to your three. Not a lot of hemming and hawing. That, those are, well, yeah, it's those... because I, I, I know that loyalty is my best quality. Yeah. And I know that honesty is my second best quality. And then I thought, you know, for number three, I would love if, if somehow what I did for a living was thrown in the mix. And yeah. I think informed is probably a great way to describe a journalist. <laughs> Absolutely. For sure. Well, I love chatting with you. Next time I'll have to ask about, you know, you're in Jamal's tropical vacations that you always seem oh, to be yeah. on. But just didn't have there. enough time this time. So that, that's the tease. <laughs> that's the tease. Next time Kelly's on, we'll talk best vacation. Maybe I'll have you guys together. That would be a fun one. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, lady. I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read is the story that Kelly Carter wrote for The Undefeated after Prince's death. It's called Pop Life. I met Prince and he told me something with a look and I got it. You can find it on The Undefeated. In it, one of the things that uh, she talks about is that interview that she shared with Michael Wilbon and other reporters shortly before his death. And one of the things they talked about was the music industry. Prince talked about how he was disappointed with streaming services who offered him a fraction of what they had paid for the Beatles catalog. And Kelly writes, he said that the Beatles were paid some $400 million for their art on iTunes. And even though he has as many albums, he wasn't offered anywhere near that. One journalist asked him if he felt if it was because he was black and they were white. He shot us all a what do you think kind of look. And the stories finish. When I met Prince on that surreal night, I was working for another outlet in a job I loved with journalists who were doing amazing work. Since then, I've moved over to ESPN's The Undefeated, a project that allows me, a black journalist, to use my experience as a black woman as I do my work. This new project values my lived black experience. Writing about Prince's death certainly was not the first byline I expected to have here at ESPN's The Undefeated. It was my hope that at one point I'd be able to go back to Paisley Park and sit down with Prince for a deeper one-on-one conversation and do exactly the type of work I have planned for the undefeated. I'm here to tell stories of black folks in entertainment because I get it. I get that even when you are one of the world's most famous musicians, a man who has made many millions singing songs that will last many generations, you need someone who gets when much of what you have to say is inferred with a quick head nod. And I do. Rest in peace, Prince. Everyone is hearing you today. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.